Hey there, Duke fans. This is Jason Evans coming at you. I have a bit of breaking news before we get to today's podcast. As you probably have heard, Derek Whitehead broke a bone in his foot on Monday, and he had surgery today, Tuesday. Um, they say that he will be back in the fall, and depending on your definition of the fall, that would seem to make it likely that he may not miss any games for the Blue Devils. And even if he does, it would probably only be a few early season games. Of course, with any freshman like Derek Whitehead, the bigger problem may be the practices that he misses early in the season. You don't want any freshman to fall behind, and that could be what we're talking about with Derek Whitehead. We're only talking, by the way, about a guy who is projected to be Duke's best player this season and a top lottery pick. So this is obviously a big deal for the team. Assuming he's back before December, there's plenty of time, though, to get him integrated to the team in time for ACC play. We're going to have much more on this news on our next podcast over the weekend. But the truth is this news came out after we recorded our latest podcast. So Donald and Sam are not here with me to react to it right now. We'll put it on the shelf. We'll table it for just a little bit and we'll bring you information on it when we get it in a couple of days. For now, we're about to bring you our preview of the Duke football season. We may be the Duke basketball report, but we also cover Duke football. And this preview features one of the smartest guys around about Duke sports. Here you go, enjoy. Hey there, Duke fans. Welcome to episode 440, 440 of the DBR podcast, the Duke Basketball Report. We are renaming ourselves, at least for part of the podcast today. We are the Duke Football Report for the next half hour or so uh, because we're going to be talking about the upcoming season for the Duke Blue Devils as uh, Mike Elko, the Elko era, begins. I am Jason Evans. I'm your host on this journey this week. Joining me as always, Donald Wine and Sam Klein. Donald, how you doing this morning? Uh, a bit bummed because, as we discussed briefly on the last show, the SLS Artemis launch was scrubbed. Uh, there are issues, and uh, looks like we may not get to see that for at least a few days until they figure out what's going on. But I'm a space nut. I want to see. I want to see a rocket this morning. Yeah, well, we should bring in our our space guru, the man who worked on the rocket, Sam Klein. Sam, what are your thoughts? I know your thoughts are not good. Uh, my, th <laughs> my thoughts are uh, classic. Uh, I told you so. Duh. <laughs> this is exactly how this program works. If this thing actually flies, I I like I should have lost. I, I I was telling you guys this morning over text that when I left uh, my old space job at, at ULA in 2018, I bet my boss at the time that I would graduate business school before the before SLS flew. And I've now been in my post-business school job for two years uh, prior to SLS flying. So uh, I should have I should have been more aggressive and just said, I bet the thing's never going to fly. But I think at this point it will. It's just a matter of when, if it's this week or next month or something. But yeah, man, what a bummer. I just want to just want to see that thing go into space already. <laughs> how much money has been spent on this, Sam? Do you know? Um, I'm sure you know. Uh, it depends on how you do the accounting, but at least $23 billion has been spent developing SLS and then uh, a lot more money developing Orion, which is the spacecraft that's flying on top of it. So, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's it's expensive. A yeah, billion uh, here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, that, Jim Sumner's that, here. Yeah, that voice that, uh, that voice from the wilderness, that is Jim Sumner. Uh, who is one of the leading experts 
on Duke football, Duke basketball, all Duke sports. Jim has been writing for decades about uh, Duke sports. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jason. Good morning. Good good Monday morning. I'm not sure that's not a contradiction in terms, but we'll go with that. Good Monday morning. <laughs> Uh, and by the way, Jim, I want to tell everybody, you know, for a long time, Jim uh, wrote for the Duke Basketball Report. Uh, unfortunately, he's not doing that any longer. Jim, where can folks find your outstanding analysis and writing about Duke sports at this point? Well, you can go to Substack. Uh, technically, it's jimsumner.substack.com, or you can just, if that's too much to remember, just go to Substack and put my name in the search engine and it should pop up. Yeah, and and folks, uh, I've I've subscribed to Jim's Substack, so I get his articles every time they come out. They are outstanding, as they always have been for for the longest time. I cannot recommend more highly that you uh, make sure that you are getting everything that Jim has to say about Duke athletics, because it is some some learned uh, analysis that is for sure. And so, Jim, um, the thing, the reason we have you on today is that you've been attending the scrimmages practices what, what what's been your exposure to duke football over the past few weeks well i've had two scrimmages both open to the media i've attended both of those i've attended some of the i've attended not all the practices but a good many of them the ones that have uh something approaching a scrimmage so i guess i've got about as good a feel of what's going on as anybody in the media which is to say not much because as you know, they're going to keep these things pretty vanilla when the media is there. If, if Mike Elko and his coordinators have anything really fancy up their sleeve, they'll keep it up their sleeves for at least, uh, what, five more days. And I'm going to let Donald and Sam dive more into the team itself. But I just want to ask you for your impressions of Mike Elko. I mean, you know, obviously there are, there are new players on offense and defense and and the players are who we're going to focus on in a bit, but I want to start with your impressions of the coaching staff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Start, start me with Mike Elko. Well, he, he, he seems very methodical, very meticulous, very precise. I think he knows he and his staff know what they want. They aren't skipping steps or they're, they're teaching them. I think his emphasis was on bringing in teachers. If you want to talk about the staff as a whole, from the very, very beginning, he has, been quite upfront that w when he was talking to to uh, to Duke about this job, talking to, to Nina King and Art Chase and everybody else about this job, he he insisted that he had to have an upgraded salary for his assistance, and he got that. And he he's brought in people with a proven track record in most cases at Power Five schools. So I think one of the things that you get when you're talking to the players and the support staff is these. People are teachers. They know how to teach techniques and concepts and, you know, very specific little points like how you said and that sort of thing. I think you, know, you, you, you have to respect Elko for the way he has refused to throw David Cutcliffe under the bus. And I, I'll say this up front. I love David Cutcliffe. Uh, what he did at Duke was remarkable and it was time for him to go. Because, and I think in large part it was because the quality of assistant coaches had dropped and that was because of the dollar signs he was able to wave in front of assistant coaches when he started losing people like Jim Knowles and John Latina and Mike McIntyre he was unable to replace them with equal 
caliber coaches. And I think Mike Elko has come in and he, he, this is his first time as a head coach. He's been an outstanding defensive coordinator. He was a safety at Penn. He knows defense, but he's understood from the very beginning. I'm a CEO of a big organization. I've got, uh, and I've talked to him about this. He said the hardest thing I've had to learn how to do is delegate, but he's learned how to delegate to his other coaches and they are all taking control of their position groups. And you talk to the players. That's the first thing you hear. These guys know how to teach. And uh, my, my last question regarding the coaching staff is what do you think their expectations are for this first season? I, you know, I'm going to be honest. I've seen a lot of stuff that's projecting Duke to have two, maybe three wins. Mm -hmm. um, where do you think now, obviously they're not going to come out and say to you, yeah, we'll be lucky to win three games. Yeah. But, but, you know, do you get a sense that they understand that this may be a real long-term process of turning this program around? Well, it's funny. It's kind of, I, I, I don't think any of the coaches, the, the players are very upfront about this, that they expect to go to a bowl game this year which is a big ass coming off of an eight game losing. I streak. love that. I love that attitude though. I mean, yeah. that's what they should be saying and yeah. thinking. Yeah. But I haven't seen a coach who said that, but what they say is kind of a combination of two things. One is we owe it to these players to try to win as soon as we can. These guys came here expecting the coaches to give them their best effort, their best chance, best opportunity to win games. And we are going to fulfill that obligation while also saying, Things like I'm going to define success in terms of, a, of it's more process oriented. We want to establish our culture. Uh, we want to establish our goals, our program. And we, we, you know, it's not a one year thing. We want to build towards better football teams in the future. And it starts this year. So I don't know that. I mean, the thing is, Jason, if you, if you look at last year, the way you know, Duke started off with a very, disappointing loss at Charlotte, a game that they should never have lost. They came back, they won three in a row. They beat two power five teams, both at home, Northwestern and Kansas. Then they lost to North Carolina and Chapel Hill got blown out. Then the Georgia Tech game was another game that was at home. They had so many chances to win that game and they couldn't do it. After that, it was six blowouts in a row. They were not competitive at all. They lost the and he scores like 62 to 22. Louisville had almost 700 yards of total offense against them. So you could see a lot of improvement, but not too many more wins because you, know, you can get a lot better. You can, instead of losing 56 to 7, you're losing 28 21, and it's still a loss. So I think that it starts with being competitive. That said, I personally, I put the over under wins at about four. I will say right now, beating Temple this Friday is absolutely essential to this team having any success. I don't see how they can possibly get within shouting distance of a ball game if they lose this game. Well, I I, I like I like the attitude that the coaches are taking and 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 that you're reporting that they uh, that they're you know com being competitive. That that's absolutely something we should expect. I'm gonna let Donald take a deep dive with you on the offense. Then Sam's gonna do the defense. Donald, take it away. Yeah, and I think start right where we think we're going to start QB1. Um, Mike Elko announced him just a couple of days ago that Riley Leonard would be the starting quarterback, uh, at least you know starting the season against Temple on Friday. Give us your thoughts on Riley Leonard and that battle that he kind of had in, in training camp between himself and Jordan Moore, uh, the two most experienced guys coming back to replace Gunnar Humber. 
Yeah, I think if you use the term most experienced, you need to put air quotes in it. Uh, Riley did get one start last year when Gunnar Holmberg was out with an injury, but he's he's a sophomore, true sophomore. Uh, he, he and you know he, it, this is a quarterback centric league in the ACC. You look at people like Devin Leary, Sam Hartman when he comes back, <clears throat> Malik Cunningham, you know, Ben Slyke. I mean, Brennan Armstrong. He's in a league. Duke's in a league with a lot of great quarterbacks, and I think it's it's a bit much to ask Riley Leonard to be a great quarterback at th this point. That said, he's he looks like a great quarterback. He's six four. He's two fifteen. He's got a strong, accurate arm. He carries himself like somebody who expects to be good. He has that aura of I'm not talking about super cocky, but he you know he you just look at him his his body language. He he never slumps. He never shakes his head. Heads, he makes a mistake, he owns up to it, and he goes back to the drawing board and figures out how to not do it again. One thing about Leonard, um, if you remember when he was in high school in Alabama, he lit up social media with video highlights, but not from the football field, from the basketball field, from the basketball court. Uh, mostly dunks. He was a very athletic dunker. He was all state Alabama. Uh, a player of the year candidate averaged over 20 points a game in a competitive league could have gotten scholarships to not power five, not Duke level schools, but he was a guy who was always, you know, 360 degree windmill tomahawk dunks. So he's an athlete. He can run, he can, but I think his running is more keep going to be keeping a play alive. I think he will be able to tuck the ball under, uh, and pick up yards. It will help him that he has uh, an experienced offensive line and an experienced wide receiver core. It will hurt him that he does not have an experienced running back. That's the biggest question mark for quarterback. But when I was talking to the quarterback coach and offensive coordinator, uh, Coach Johns, he was saying, we are not, and this is when it was still a race between Leonard and Morris, said, we're not going to give him the whole playbook right now. We're not gonna we're not gonna leap past anything. We're gonna concentrate on a few things that they can do well. So it may not be, you know, Steve Spurrier, you know, V2, uh, with guys running all over the field. I think it'll be a pretty pretty basic offense, at least at the beginning, if he proves he can master that. We'll see it open up a little bit. So you kind of leapt into it with the uh running game, right? Last year really the, the the whole offense kind of centered around Mateo Durant. He had over 12, almost 1,300 yards from uh, wow. rushing and 1,400 yards from scrimmage. Yeah, How do you replace that? And especially given the fact that our the guy on the team that has the most rushing yards that's returning is Jordan Moore, the guy who lost out the quarterback uh, QB1 uh, competition. Yeah. yeah, How do you incorporate him into that offense? Well, the, it, it, it's kind of ironic, Donald. Uh, David Cutcliffe always – said he wanted a three, four running. If you remember the year that Duke won the coast, he actually had a four running back rotation. He liked to have three, four running backs and to keep them fresh, not keep them fresh in, in any, in any individual game and keep them fresh over the course of the season. One of the reasons, don't, don't get me wrong, but Terry Durant had a great season. He was a great, great, great player last year. One of the reasons he was able to break the Duke single season rushing record, excuse me, was there wasn't anybody else on the team to share touches with him. He was the only ACC-level running back. Uh, 
So you have a coach who wants to use a lot of running backs. You had one this year, back in the spring, coach John Solis, he wanted a quote bell cow. He wanted one running back to seize that job and be his only guy. But, but he has, has since backtracked on that. And he said, you know, we don't have a bell cow. We hope to use the versatility. So I think that's, that's coach speak for, you know, we're a little concerned about that. You mentioned Jordan Moore. He's going to be at, at, at wide receiver. I don't know if there's any, ever any plans to get him, um, to move him to running back. We saw last year when Moore was a quarterback, if he can get the ball in space, he's really, really dangerous. But that's, a, I guess, they figure the best way to do that is to throw it to him, not to hand it to him. Jordan Waters has 305 career rushing yards. He's the career leader uh, in the running back room. Jalen Coleman has made an inspiring comeback after missing a year with Achilles surgery. We all know that having Achilles surgery can be a career ender, and here he is you know, competing for the job. And there's some other other guys uh, who, who are definitely going to be in, in the mix, but I think yeah, that's a position that Duke would love to have one guy grab it by the throat and seize it and say, this is my job. But spring ball and fall ball, no one has done that. So I think that that's clearly a concern, Duke. That Duke doesn't want Riley Leonard to be their leading ball carrier. They need somebody to step up and say, I'm I'm the man. Give me the ball. And you mentioned Riley Leonard. Of course, he's going to be throwing the ball. And there's, you know, one guy absent from last year that was really good at catching the ball, and that's Jake Bobo. Mm -hmm. But we do have one back in Jason Calhoun. You mentioned Jordan Moore is also going to be in that wide receiver core, but who else is going to be out there to help kind of stretch defenses and, and get the ball downfield in a hurry, which is something that Duke struggled at yeah, immensely. I think that's a big question. Well, Duke, you mentioned Jake Bobo. They do return Jalen Calhoun, who has 141 career receptions. They're both possession receivers. Duke has had trouble in recent years finding somebody who can get open deep and catch the ball. I'm not going to you know, try to throw anybody in the bus. They've had some guys in recent years who could get open deep, but they couldn't catch the ball with consistency. So they've got a lot of guys who can run an eight yard out and catch the ball. You've got three seniors, Jalen Calhoun, Eli Panko, and Daryl Harding who have experience, and a junior, John Tavis Robertson, who has experience. I'm not, maybe Jordan Moore is that guy, but the guy in the wide receiver room that I think Duke fans need to keep an eye on is a sophomore named Samir Hagens. Had a really big spring. He's had a really big fall. He's a, not a big like Harding is 6'4, 220. Higgins is 5'11, 185, 190. But he's the guy I think he's maybe has the high ceiling in that receiver group. It's going to be interesting to see if he can get, be the guy who can stretch the field. And yeah, you know, at, at Duke, I think lots of Duke fans would ask this question. I mean, you know, some people. Oh, some of us remember Steve Spurrier, who famously said several times, I want to throw the ball deep early. Every game, even if it misses, it gives the defense something to think about. Duke hasn't had that philosophy in a long time. And the reality is a lot has to go right to hit a 60-yard downfield strike. And it starts with the blocking. you got to give your quarterback time to throw the ball, time for the receiver to get open. You've got to give – you know, the, the line's got to block, the quarterback's got to find the right man downfield. He's got to throw a well-thrown ball. The receiver has to be open, he has, and he has to catch it. Any one of those things goes wrong, and you're looking at second and 10. Um, so Duke has really 
stayed away from the, the deep ball. And it's hard to say if they're going. I think we'll see more deep shots this year. Again, as we were saying earlier, it's hard to say because they you know they're keeping stuff in the, their pocket. Just to give an example, Duke, even going back in the spring, they didn't release they didn't release a depth chart and they told the media don't even speculate please don't that's been the case all fall don't even that's why it was an announcement that raleigh leonard if you attended the scrimmage which was open to the media but not fans you saw jordan moore playing wide receiver and raleigh leonard playing quarterback the only other recruited quarterback is henry billen is a true freshman so you knew leonard but they had to have an announcement for it because they've been so you know I won't say paranoid, but the old World War II expression, loose lips sink ships, that's a staple of the college football mindset. I'm sure the Temple coaches are saying, gosh, who's going to be the first string tight end? Who's going to be? We can't game plan. And so, you know, that I have a feeling they're keeping some stuff under the, uh, you know, under their, under their, under their collar to, you know, bring out. But right now we have not seen I mean, I haven't seen a lot of deep shots and in the scrimmages. And one of the reasons why, Donald, is, is, is they they really want to establish the running game. I've seen I've seen portions of scrimmages where Duke would run the ball six, seven plays in a row between the tackles. That if you go back to spring, the buzzword was physical, or it's close to relative physicality. They want to be able to run the football, and they. This is where you, you you have to have, you know, one or more of these running backs to seize it. But this is a team they dedicated themselves to getting bigger and stronger. They hit the weight room really, really hard. They've improved their nutrition. I mean, you don't think about the training table, but these guys rave about the new nutrition program. The 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 people that are staffing it the greater availability of, of high quality food, the input that they have talk, you know, can you make this, can you make this? Duke has really upgraded its training table. And that's not the kind of thing that sells tickets to the fan base, you know, come see your new Duke football team, the one that's been well-fed, but they are committed to putting out better condition, more physically fit football players. And to the extent that I can, Tell this sort of thing. I th these guys do look. They, they look ripped. They look confident. They look like they're ready to go. I don't say. I won't say. They're ready to go into a football game. Well, they say the devils in the details, and I'm hoping. Uh, I think we're all hoping and looking forward to seeing if the blue devil details are all working themselves out, especially on Friday night. I, I think. From the offensive standpoint, we've covered a lot, and I want to switch to the defense because I know there's also some questions on that side of the football. So I'm going to hand over to Sam so he can take over for me uh, and talk about the defense. Yeah, I think you've, you've both referenced uh, the performance last year on defense, which down the stretch was uh, really not one that Duke wants to remember too deeply. Uh, and in hey, the spirit Sam, of that... Sam, I'm sorry, I'm going to correct you. It was awful. <laughs> I look, I would also accept your hideous, words, hideous, abysmal. Uh, yeah. Well, so in, in the spirit of that, uh, of course, Duke had two co-defensive coordinators last year. Uh, those guys are gone. Uh, that, that includes alum Jeff Ferris, uh, and, and, uh, coach Elko has brought in 
two uh, new co-defensive coordinators, Rob Smith and Jess Simpson. So maybe we can start there, Jim. What's your impression of of those guys coming in? Uh, no experience between the two of them at Duke, but uh, some other prominent line items on their resume that yeah. uh, hopefully bring a new flavor to um, to this program. Well, Smith has been the guy that that that's had had all the media contacts, so I think he's the first among equals. Um, he, he's he's if there's one in one A, he's he's one. Um, yeah, you know, one thing that the I guess the, the probably the most important thing about the defense is they're putting enormous emphasis on improved tackling. If you remember back in the Carl Franks Ted Roof era, Duke couldn't tackle; they were terrible tackling. Biggest improvement David Cutcliffe made when Duke was good in the middle tenure of his, the middle part of his tenure is they didn't miss tackles. Guys like Jeremy Cash and Kelby Brown, these guys did not miss tackles. And all of a sudden, the last few years, there's been some real slippage. You saw a lot of Duke guys, you know, playing Matador defense, particularly at, at the second and third level, at the linebacker and safety and cornerback positions, which was turning a lot of eight-yard plays into 60-yard touchdown plays. So they have worked enormously hard on tackling. And I have not seen very many missed tackles in what I've been watching. And I have I have written this entirely possible. I cannot rule out the possibility that Duke's offensive players aren't good enough to make people miss. You know, I mean, we talked about the problems that Duke has, uh, the questions, I guess, maybe – at running back, um, you know, m- maybe tackling these guys is, is different than tackling good running backs at Virginia Tech and Miami and Pittsburgh, but we'll, we'll see. But there's been a tremendous emphasis on tackling. Um, Coach Smith, I think we're still going to be using a 4-2-5, but I think he's expressed a little more flexibility depending on the game situation, depending on the strengths and weaknesses of the opposing team. He was telling us that depending on what we, we might see some sets with three defensive linemen, we might see um, six DBs or we might see three linebackers. He does not, he wants to be able to put pressure on the quarterback with the down four linemen. He will blitz but it's not going to be a mainstay. Again, unless he's blowing smoke, unless they're going to come out against Temple and blitz, you know, every third play. But he seems to want to be able to establish consistent pass pressure with the four defensive linemen. One of those defensive linemen, Dwayne Carter, defensive tackle, is a really, really good football player. There are at least two guys on the defense, Carter and linebacker Shaka Hayward, who are next-level players, and you've got to build your defense around the studs. Those will be the two guys they'll be building their defense around. The Cutcliffe era, I think, was mostly defined, at least when it was good, on the defense side by speed as opposed to to power. So it sounds like uh, Mike Elko is taking maybe a slightly di- – or at least the the new defensive coordinators are taking a slightly different approach to uh, to building defensive talent than than Coach Cutcliffe's guys did. I don't think they would consider that a useful distinction. I'm thinking that they think if you're in well conditioned, if you're if if you're 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 your best self, you're going to be strong and fast. I asked Dwayne Carter about the off season uh, conditioning program and said, well, you know, were you working on 
strength, quickness, cardiovascular, and he says all of the above. We're trying to get bigger, stronger, and faster. Um, I will point out too that there are some new faces, probably the biggest single disappointment, surprising disappointment on the football team last year was in the secondary. Well, on paper, that looked like a strength. They had guys like Josh Blackwell and Leonard Johnson and Lemmy Young and Jeremiah Lewis, experienced defensive backs who we thought, and I certainly thought were going to be, has potential to be a really excellent secondary. And it, it, it just didn't happen. And you can say, you know, the defensive line didn't put enough pressure on opposing quarterbacks. And that would be true. You could, you could point out that Duke faced a murderous row of quarterbacks, Sam Howell, Kenny Pickett, Brendan Armstrong, Sam Hartman, Malik Cunningham. Every time you turned around, there was an all world quarterback going, but, the secondary, secondary really struggled. There's some new faces this year that are going to, I think people are going to notice there's a kid named Darius Joyner from, um, from Alabama. He started out at Jacksonville State. He played last year at Western Illinois. He had 142 tackles in 11 games, was uh, FCS first team All-American. Now that's a level below the ACC, but every time I've seen him, play this year every scrimmage every practice he's making plays he's making and he's got that if you remember chris rump he's got that chris rump personality he's got that swagger he's got i used to tell chris chris you need to switch to decaf uh he is on Darius joiner he is wired but he and he he's actually come out and said it went in high school his goal was to play basketball for mike krzyzewski so he's got he's he's where he wants to be albeit not Exactly, you know, but he's he's where he wants to be at Duke, and he is he's a player who he he's very proactive on defense. He runs, he's around the ball, he makes plays. Uh, he is going to be he's a he's probably going to be playing safety, like all football teams these days. You work your corners at safety, you work your safeties at corners, so you make yes, you, know, so you have that kind of positional flexibility, but. Remember that name, Darius Joyner. And then there's a true freshman named Chandler Rivers, the cornerback. And he he's also, he is, he's gonna be, he's gonna be on the field. He's gonna I asked Elko about his philosophy on playing true freshman. He says, we're gonna play the best football players we have. If they're a freshman, you're gonna play. If you're a freshman and you're better than a redshirt senior, you're gonna play. So there are some new faces, some new bodies. There's Detron Young, who played at Iowa State, a Power Five school. He's moving over to Pennsylvania. So there are some new, some new faces in the secondary. Jim, I was going to ask you about a few of those guys, and then you just went and touched on them all. So, so the, my one, my one sort of general uh, observation about this team is that at least when I look at uh, projected depth charts, it's it's mostly returning guys that are that are getting all the spots that you know other than uh other than Chandler Rivers um you know there aren't that many freshmen that are projected to play on this team even sophomores that are projected to get you know first team reps here so given that the that this defense was not strong at all last year yeah. how yeah. do you think about the difference between uh experience and talent uh with yeah. with, with with such a you know deficit across the board you know, that's, that's the old joke about a struggling football team. The good news is everybody's back. 
The bad news is everybody's it's the bad. same guys. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, like I said, it goes back to what I was saying earlier that, that, that Coach Elko has consistently said we owe it to these guys to give them the chance to win. So I think he will – give the veterans a chance. It'll be interesting to see what happens. If, if Duke, bless you, if Duke struggles, is there a point where he says, okay, we're going to go with the young guys. Uh, um, but, but yeah, that's, that's premature. Hopefully Duke won't struggle, but there are, um, there are some younger, younger players. I think there's a, a linebacker named Trey Freeman from Durham. who's a sophomore had a really big spring. I don't think he's going to start if he's assuming Duke sticks with the four-two-five. They can have Chaka Hayward and and Dorian Masuai, who's a, who, who's a veteran, will be there uh, at the linebacker. But but there are some young some young guys. I think the the the, the thing they're really hanging their hat on is improved tackling, improved physicality, and just better cohesion in terms of I think if we think back I know it's it's painful to think back to some of the games last year but there were how many plays did we see where there was busted coverage and a wide receiver an opposing wide receiver would run down the field and catch the ball and there wasn't a Duke defender in the same zip code um a lot way too many so I think they're 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 thinking we've got some ACC level football players who just have to be coached better. And I'll, I'll say, I, I, yeah, I'm going back to Mike Elko. He has never, at least that I've heard, thrown David Cutcliffe and his staff under the bus. I asked him specifically, you know, jobs like this usually come open because something was going wrong. What went wrong last year? And, and, and he just said, well, you know, sometimes you just need a change. Sometimes things just, you just, just need a change. Uh, well, Jim, let's hope it's a uh, it's a positive change for Duke. I'm going to uh, give it back to Jason, I think, to uh, wrap up this conversation about the gridiron Blue Devils. Yeah, Jim, this was great. We really appreciate it. We hope we can have you back at some point um, okay. with, to, to assess how the team is doing once we've actually seen them uh, play real games. And, and the first one's coming up this week against Temple. So thanks again, sir. And before you go Jason, again, to, Jason, oh, you go just, just remind your remind listeners the game is Friday night. Yep. Friday night. Yes, it is. And uh, we'll be back to talk about it very soon after it's over. But I was going to say, before you go again, remind folks where they can read your outstanding writing about Duke athletics. Just go to Substack and type my name in. It'll come back. Jim Summoner.substack.com. And you just had a really nice article about Chelsea Gray in the WNBA. Mm -hmm. This man covers everything that has to do with D-U-K-E. Jim, thanks so much for being on. Okay, just nice. I appreciate it. Have a good rest of your day, rest of your week, rest of your month. <laughs>All right, guys, we have to talk about some of what Jim Sumner had to say to us. Great analysis from him. I'm going to start and say this. I love what he had to say about the coaching staff, about Elko recognizing that he's the CEO, about him bringing in assistants who will be teachers. Um, about paying those assistants better, hugely, hugely important. Um, and, and I love that they said they want to they want to do the right thing by these players and give them a chance to win as many games as possible. And then Sam, when he was talking to you and he talked about Darius jo Darius Joiner, the transfer from Western Illinois, and how that guy's just flying around making plays 
Uh, I'll admit it. I'm not someone who pays a ton of attention in the preseason to Duke football. I've got a name to watch out for on defense now, thanks to Jim Sumner. What what was your takeaway, Sam? That the rhetoric around coaching changes has not changed since 2007 when uh, Duke hired Coach Cutcliffe. The team is hitting the weight room and they're uh, getting back to nutrition and they're doing all the things to to turn the program around. Look, I don't think that Duke football in 2021 was in the same place that Duke football was in in 2007, but uh, some of the same issues are highlighted here. Uh, general, you know, lack of progress, and maybe, you know, maybe the maybe the, the the team's nutrition and weightlifting and all the sort of ancillary stuff around the field had improved to the point where it was you know, mid-level ACC quality by the time Cutcliffe really got things going. And then maybe they just fell behind because everyone was moving faster than them. So part of what you look for in a coaching change, like Jim was saying at the end there, is not that, oh, we need to install new schemes and the old guy doesn't have the right schemes. Like Coach Cutcliffe can't learn the new schemes. Coach Cutcliffe made a lot of changes to the way that he approached game planning and recruiting even in the time that he was at Duke. The challenge is that things can get stale and and sometimes you just need the the fresh faces to come in and say, hey, we're not going to do it this way anymore. And I'm not burdened by whatever you all did five, six years ago to to make things work. I'm coming in with with new perspectives. Duke is uh, not just Mike Elko, but brought in a few other coaches who have power five experience in, in other programs and a little bit of NFL experience. And you just need that that fresh perspective uh the duke coaching staff especially in recent years was populated with a lot of duke alumni and as good as the program was for a few years there in the in the early teens it's not like a a staff full of duke football players is the same as a staff full of duke basketball players like the, the guys who have all been making final fours and winning accs during their time in college so i'm looking forward to the fresh start and i'm looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, the, the kind of progress they make. They do have a tough schedule this year, so I don't want to set the expectations too high, but I, I think that Mike Elko and, and his staff can make a lot of progress in a short time. And really quick to react to what you just said there. So first of all, I think the key, and Jim Sumner touched on this, it's not necessarily W's. Obviously, we want wins, but it's being competitive. It's competing better than we were last year. No question about that. Number two is you talked about, you know, oh, everybody says new coach, new weight room, stuff like that. I will say I saw a ton of videos in the past month, you know, month or two on Twitter of Duke guys in the weight room, you know, setting records and doing all kinds of stuff there. You know, I don't know if behind the scenes, the same stuff was happening in the past, but they weren't promoting it the way they have been this year. So that matters to me. And and then last thing is we've been spoiled by Coach K. And by the success of the of the basketball program, having a change every decade or so, probably not a terrible thing. And you talked about the fact, you know, Duke guys in the program. Obviously, we love it when our alumni get, you know, coaching jobs. But at the same time, look how excited all Duke fans were and everyone who follows Duke basketball was about bringing in Jay Lucas. Um, I think it's a really good thing that Mike Elko, that we have this fresh blood and that it's guys who bring perspective from a lot of different programs. So uh, Donald, what, what are your takeaways from what Jim had to say? Yeah, well, for me, I, I mean, I was on the video staff for the Carl Franks era and the beginning of the Ted Roof era. So I have seen a lot of terrible football at Duke University. 
firsthand. And I know Sam was a manager on the team, but he was a manager in the Cutcliffe era, which I attribute to being basically the Nick Saban era of college football at Duke compared to what I had to go through. So I say this, I, I say this you know, with all respect, right? The foundation was laid under Cutcliffe. We had a point where, as Sam said, we kind of went to kind of the middle of the ACC, competed for bowl games, competed for division titles, and really ended. We had one you know year where we really went for it, and I think we kind of regressed to the mean sort of you know in a little bit towards the end of that uh, tenure. So now we do have to get back to that foundation, which is you know being stronger in the weight room. I mean, when Co- when Cutcliffe came in, he talked about they had a goal of the entire team losing a thousand pounds because he thought everyone was overweight and he needed to get guys leaner, faster, more physical. Now there's a new emphasis on nutrition, a new emphasis on, you know, being stronger and setting that standard of, Hey, we're going to get better and we're going to improve ourselves every single day. Will that take this year? Maybe not. And I, I mean, I think we all hope that we can get to a bowl game this year. I think that's a great goal. Um, is it a realistic goal? It's a very difficult one, but it's sure it's realistic. It's something that can happen, but it is a difficult schedule that we face this year. And I think there's going to be some growing pains as we get to enter this new era of Duke football. But I still maintain my excitement about it because there's nothing like having a college football Saturday. I don't care where you are, even at Duke, you know, even when we were 0-12 every single year. I was excited every Saturday for Duke football and especially at the beginning of the season. So everyone get out to Wallace Wade on Friday. Everyone support this team as they enter this new era uh, under Mike Elko. And honestly, these players, again, they're talking the right game. They're, they're confident. And I want to, I want them to show that And the two plays, there are two things I want to see. I want to see big plays on offense because that gets excited. That gets the team energized. And on defense, I want to limit that big play. There's a lot of other details that we can talk about, and we'll probably talk about them as the season goes. But for Friday, I want to see those two things because if we can, if we can make the big play and stop the big play on defense, I think we're having we're, we're winning more ball games than most people think we. All right, so that's going to wrap it up for our preview of the Duke football season. We got to take a commercial break. When we come back, an ugly, ugly racist incident making headlines on sports pages all over the country, Duke's involvement in it when we return. All right, we're back from the break, and we got to talk about what happened at BYU. Uh, Duke volleyball player... Rachel Richardson, who who's a starter on the volleyball team and and is an African American, uh, Duke was playing in a tournament at Brigham Young University, and every time Rachel would go back to serve, she would hear chants from the BYU student section of people calling her the N word, and I, you know there's no way, I I I don't care. I don't care what you think about a lot of different political stuff. I don't care what you think about being woke or whatever else it may be. That's unacceptable. It just, it, it it's a terrible part of American history of human history that needs to be eliminated and cannot exist in a modern society. So uh, there's a lot of controversy surrounding this because the Rachel went back to the huddle and spoke to the coaches about it. And they decided collectively together 
that they were not going to let these racists win, that they were not going to let them know that it was affecting Rachel at all, and that they were going to continue to play the match. And there are people who say that Duke should have been more forceful during the match to get it controlled and taken care of. By the way, everyone is just saying BYU is, you know, 98.9%, 99.9% of the blame falls on BYU. But Donald, I know you have some thoughts, some comments on on a really, really ugly day in NCAA sports. Go ahead. Yeah, so I'll start off by saying this. Um, as a black person, um, we always have a plan. And sometimes when you go to certain places in this country, you have to have a plan as a black person. You have to have backup. You have to understand that you're going into a place that things can happen. And most people traditionally would say parts of the South are those places that kind of, you know, exude those type of, you know, thoughts and, and how to do it. But I'm going to tell you guys, Utah is one of them too. And it's not just Utah. And I don't want to single out the state of Utah, but Utah is a place that when black people go, they have to have a plan because there is documented history of racism occurring within the borders of that state. Now, it's not the BOAU, it's not always, in, you know, but at it, it, certain places. But I guarantee you that Rachel Richardson and the rest of the black players on the team, of which she's not the only one, there's several black players on the volleyball team, they probably had a plan on what to expect when they went to play these games because it is not the first time that this has happened in Utah sports history. It's not the first time this has happened in Utah at all. I've only seen, you know, when I, I've been to Utah, you know, half a dozen times and the only black person I've ever seen while I've been there. And this of course is anecdotal is when me and my friend went to a wedding together. But again, even then we had a plan of what to do, how to have each other's back if something were to go awry. And I say this, we had the same thing in Durham. We had the same thing in Raleigh. We had the same thing in some of these towns all up and down the, the South. Sam, you're in Boston. I have the same plan in Boston because it's happened there too. Like it's not, again, I'm not putting any extreme focus on one particular city, but this happens a lot. And I think the issue was this. People are not listening to what Rachel Richardson and the rest of the black players had to say. And I think... I'm glad that she came out with her statement. I hate that she had to do that, but I'm glad that she came out with it because it shifted what a lot of people thought about who was to blame. Because of course, everyone was looking A for blame and B for, you know, accountability. The accountability is not going to come because it's already happened. And at the same, for BYU to come out and kind of say, this is someone who was in the student section who wasn't a student. We don't have any, affiliation with this person and he's been banned that's not enough because there's a i mean it was a record crowd at that game byu set a record for attendance at byu volleyball for that match and every single person in that gym everybody failed those black players by not stepping up and saying something if it was just one person that person should have been booted out long before security and police had to be put in front of the duke section now, I, I want to shift to, the, I, I, I keep going to the BYU. I want to talk about Duke for a second. I think what they did is they clearly had a plan of how to attack this. And, you know, Rachel Richardson talked about the anti-racist training that they have been through as a team. 
collectively. And, and again, they probably had some sort of plan of, hey, whenever this happens, no matter where we go, this is how we react. And I will tell you, the people who say that Duke should have left the court and they should have removed themselves from the situation are not necessarily thinking the way that a lot of black people do. I know what Rachel Richardson was thinking. She wanted to beat their ass. She wanted to just save all her strength and take it out on the court. Because honestly, for me, if that were me in my situation, the only strength that we have in that moment when someone calls you the N-word is to channel it towards beating someone's ass. And it may not be it may not be right to do it to that particular person. So in her instance, she was like, I'm just going to try and win this ball game and stick it to everybody in this gym who backed that person up when they were making the racist remarks. So that, I mean, you have to understand, some people lose all sort of focus when that happens to them. And it's hard to explain in words what you're feeling at that moment, but the words less than nothing mostly come to mind. To be able to suppress all that and still play a volleyball game, I have so much respect for Rachel Richardson and all the other black players on that team and all the players on Duke's team for, again, saying, what do we want to do? How do we want to react to this? How do we want to do it? They may not have won the ball game, but they won in my eyes because they had her back the way that she wanted them to have their back. And it does not matter what me or anyone else thinks about what they should have done. They did what their teammate wanted them to do. And I think people are missing that part of it. And I think when we talk about how much blame does Duke have in this, how much blame does BYU have in this, they did their jobs by having her back. The people who did not have their back are BYU. Imagine this. Something happens on the road. In Duke basketball, we've had a lot of things happen on the road. Coach K is not going to a microphone and telling people to stop like he would in Cameron. Why? Because that's not his house. BYU needs to take care of their house. And they may say they don't have a history of this, but again, this is a not necessarily an institution that has a history of it, but a state that does. And they need to recognize that the quote-unquote apology that they put out was not enough. And they need to do more. They need to be able to police better. And they need to be able to, again, have these situations where they stopped the game immediately. The referees should have stopped the game immediately. They had more power than Rachel Richardson did at that moment. They had more power than Duke did at that moment. And I want people to be clear that when it comes to this blanket statements about what they should have done, do not help the situation. Because most people making that assumption do not know what she was going through. As someone who has had that happen to him on the field, I know exactly what she was thinking. She was thinking, take it out and beat them to a smithering pulp on the court and let that statement be the the way that carries a day. And honestly, she had more strength than I ever would in that moment because she was able to suppress that. And I really commend her for that. And I really, you know, I thank her for coming forward with her thoughts on it. And I just hope people listen to it because it's very important to listen to what Black athletes have to say about these type of moments because they still occur way too frequently. And this will not be the last time this happens, but I hope people take something from it. Donald, I don't want to add too much more other than to say thanks for, for sharing all that with us. Um, it's obviously uh, a different conversation that Jason and I can have without you. So um, I don't have much to add to that other than to note that it sounds like the 
the Duke people involved in this at least are rallying around each other and that they're supporting each other and that there's not at least publicly uh, any any big blame going around. So I'm glad that at least on the on the you know side that that I'm that I care the most about that they're taking care of each other. I don't want to speculate about you know exactly what's going on at BYU and the politics involved there, but um, I'm glad that I'm glad that Duke seems to have things in order. Uh, we know that the leadership at at Duke in the athletic department uh, is is conscientious of all this kind of stuff, and that they're they're doing what they can to to make it a supportive and inclusive environment for all the student athletes, and that's really all we can ask for. So, uh, you know, there's a simple, to some extent, cure for this, which is diversity. When you, it's hard to hate people when you know them as friends, as colleagues, whatever it may be. One of the problems that they have at BYU, one of the problems you have in the state of Utah, but especially at BYU, is that there is a startling lack of diversity on their campus. It's partially the nature of the religion and and some other stuff. But regardless of that, the statistics clearly show that if you're someone at BYU, you're just not going to encounter many people of color. Like an incident like this, I'll go ahead and say it. An incident like this could not happen at Duke. Because if you start shouting the N-word and you were in the crowd at Duke, there would be a huge percentage of the crowd that would just be like, excuse me, no. And, and you know, would take you, you know, make it clear that that is not acceptable because we have diversity on campus. I would say, just to push back slightly, that this can happen anywhere. This can happen at Duke. I think the reaction is what you're saying would be much different. Right, and exactly. I agree with you there. That exactly. reaction would be much different, but make no mistake, this is something that probably has happened on campus, and it, it'll, again, it will happen anywhere you turn your head, because you know, for us, we kind of have to keep our head in the swivel, because as we know, it can happen at any moment. Oh, to, to me, the, the worst part of it is not that a guy was yelling the N-word. The problem is that there wasn't a crowd of people saying, stop. No, that is not acceptable. And that he was able to do it repeatedly throughout the entire match. That's what I'm saying would not happen at Duke based on the the type of place that it is and based on the diversity we have on campus. And my point with all this is this has been a prominent enough incident. Um, It has been in the headlines enough so that if you are a person of color and you were considering BYU, you're probably thinking twice. You're probably thinking three times. You're probably not going. And that's the really unfortunate part of this kind of thing. Because like I said, the solution is we have more diversity at our universities, in our workplaces, at at sporting events all over the place. And this kind of incident and the publicity surrounding it is going to impede any effort there might be at BYU to bring more diversity to their athletes, to their sporting events, to their university. And that to me is really unfortunate because it will slow down the progress that we need to make as a society. Yeah, Jason. And and honestly, you know, again, I, I I'm with Richardson. I know we all stand with her and the rest of the, of the Duke volleyball team as they go through this and, and honestly, you know, take a little bit more scrutiny than they should, because at the end of the day, these are, you know, 18 to 22 year old women playing a game, playing a college game, and they have to deal with real life at the same time. So uh, I do not envy the position that they're in, but I hope that through this, that as a team, 
they become stronger because of it. So with that, we're going to wrap it up here on episode 440 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Not a lot of basketball in this podcast, but that's okay. A lot of Duke, important, important Duke stuff that we had to discuss with you. I am Jason. He is Donald. He is Sam. We want to thank you for joining us once again. Do not forget, anytime you want to, send us an email, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. That's the way to reach us. We respond to all those emails that we get, and you can write to us about anything you feel like chatting about. Um, again, we want to thank Jim Sumner for coming on and chatting with us about Duke football. Like Jim said, reach out to him on Substack. Jim Sumner, find him. You will not be sorry. For Donald and Sam, I'm Jason. Guys, we got to run. Do- Donald, you had one more thing? Oh, I was going to say on the Jim Sumner Substack, like it's one of those things that just popped up. I think he started it about a week ago. So if you have not heard of it, it's not because... It, you know, you've been living under a rock. He just started it, but highly recommend it. I literally just subscribed as we were talking Duke football, uh, and you should too. There you go. So, episode 440 in the books. Duke Band, it's your turn. Play us out and take us home. Take us home.